to join us. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out, braving the cold, to join us for today's lunch program. My name is Dan Albrecht. I'm with Leopardo. I am the chair of the programs committee. Along with my uh, program's co-chairs, we have Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands and Howard Wender with Strata Real Estate Services. Again, like I said, really appreciate you braving the frigid temperatures outside. I know today's program, with a little bit of nostalgia and history, will give you that warm feeling inside. So it'll be uh, it'll be a good one. So t today's program, as I always mention, is being podcast. Uh, I wanted to reiterate also that we have a very extensive library that we've compiled over the last three years with about 50 different presentations that you guys can continually look back on our, on our Cornet Chicago website. This year we have a lot of great programs in store, talking about, obviously with today, building repositioning, uh, healthcare, real estate, uh, IT infrastructure and real estate, and Made in the USA, taking a look at manufacturing, some of the highlights of uh, what's happening in the business. Today's program, History in the Remaking, we will be hearing from four industry experts highlighting examples of unique building repositioning projects. I'm going to introduce our moderator, and then in turn, Tony will announce the rest of our panelists. Please welcome Tony Smaniotto, Senior Managing Director with Studley Capital Transaction Group. Tony's been an investment broker in Chicago for over 20 years, and over his career has completed over $3 billion in real estate investment sales, primarily in the CBD and suburban office building sales. He has completed transactions involving numerous historical properties, such as the Rookery, the Burnham Building, the Clark Adams Building, 120 South LaSalle, and the LaSalle Wacker Building. Tony has also overseen the marketing and several adaptive reuse projects, such as the conversion of the former Montgomery Ward's HQ Building, uh, St. Cabrini Hospital, Lutheran General Hospital in Lincoln Park, and the Carbide Carbon Building, which now houses the Hard Rock Hotel. Please welcome Tony Smaniato. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I had a great Groupon joke, but uh, Lohenbaum stole it already. <laughs> but uh, we've got a big, uh, great lineup today, so I'm going to jump right into another few introductions. Um, I'd like to uh, introduce Michael Reschke, who is the chairman and CEO of the Prime Group. And since founding uh, that firm in 1981, Michael has directed and merged, managed the development and acquisition of over $10 billion of institutional quality real estate across the U.S. It's a, a big, accomplished uh, career. During the 90s, he was the driver and founding shareholder of several publicly traded real estate companies. He has had his hand in the formation of Prime Group Realty Trust, Ambassador Apartments, Brookdale Living Communities, and Prime Retail, which we heard today is uh, fairly active with the project in the south suburbs. He's the noted developer of 77 West Wacker and the Citadel Center, and he's also involved in numerous redevelopment projects throughout the city. And one of those that he had the foresight and, I guess, courage to renovate is 208 South LaSalle, which we're going to feature today. Uh, it's a great redevelopment of the Central Loop. You all probably know it. It houses the new JW Marriott Hotel. So please welcome Michael Reschke to the uh, podium. <laughs> we're joined by Rudy Banducci. Uh, Rudy is a vice president with DUS Management. He's the proud owner of one of Chicago's most uh, historically significant and, and I think one of the most recognizable buildings uh, in Chicago, and that's 35 East Wacker. Uh, he's been a fixture on the scene for over 20 years with management positions at some of Chicago's top companies, including JOL, Encompass, and Tishman as well. As the VP at 35 East Wacker, which has also been known as the Jewelers Building, Rudy has recently overseen a multi-million dollar renovation. I guess that renovation is an ongoing one 
in an older building and continues to maintain and manage a building that remains very competitive despite its maturity. Uh, Rudy oversees all aspects of Chicago Ops, including management and leasing, and today he'll share with us some of that building's rich history and hopefully share with us some great stories about its dome and its former occupants uh, and its elevators. So please welcome Rudy Banducci from DUS. And batting third is Michael Klein, a principal with Glenstar Properties, a company he formed with uh, Larry Deb and Rand Diamond here in Chicago. Michael began his career as a real estate attorney and has since been involved in most aspects of real estate, including development, mortgage underwriting, investment, and brokerage. At Glenstar, Michael heads the firm's new acquisitions, dispositions, and project financing efforts, and has spent several years with the principal financial group in a prior life. And he also helped establish the Midwest presence of Insignia ESG before its merger with C.B. Richard Ellis. Featured in the Crane Chicago Business roster of 40 under 40 and who's who in Chicago business, uh, today uh, Michael will share with us his insights on the company's recent renovation and adaptive reuse, I suppose, of 55 East Monroe into the Park Monroe Condominiums and Office Building. So please welcome Michael Klein. So... I'm going to start on the end with you, Michael, and talk a little bit about your project there. It's a building that we've... Uh, have the clicker? Do you have the clicker? Yeah, the clicker. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us, like, what was your original vision for that property? What were you thinking when you, uh, when you first started on, uh, on this wow. property here? Is this on? Okay. Um, this was a property that uh, has been, uh, obviously, in the Chicago skyline for a number of years. We were actually, at the time that uh, we acquired the building, we were a tenant uh, in this property. Um, gives you an idea of the views, and, and if you want to just, yeah, start there. That's what this building looked like when we bought it. 50-story office building. Uh, we were a tenant. The building came on the market at the time. I think it was Jones Lang LaSalle was marketing it. And uh, we got a call, and we looked at it initially, but we said, you know, the building at that time was 85 90% occupied. Safar Shaw was the big tenant. They were the law firm at the very top of the building. And from a redevelopment play, which is we do a lot of that in development, it really didn't have a lot of interest. Well, about two and a half, three weeks after, um, after that package came out, Safar Shaw announced that they were moving over to uh, Citadel Center. And um, one morning, uh, one of my partners, Rand Diamond, and I were driving in, and uh, we looked up at the building and said, you know, this building could be, given the views, given where it's at, could be a really interesting adaptive reuse for condominiums at the top of the building. So um, after about six months of due diligence, uh, we'd, we'd gone under contract. Uh, we came up with the idea of taking the top of the building uh, and, and literally redoing it into condominiums. Um, a lot of challenges. We had an office building. This is what it looks like today. Uh, we had to reskin the top of the building. Um, well, as, as you look at the stack on the right, the, the blue is, is the office building portion today. The orange is the, the condominiums. Uh, at the bottom of the building, we have a, a seven-level parking garage that when we bought the building, we had to completely redo, take it down to the rebar, repour the whole garage. And we had to do this while we had about a million square feet of tenants in the middle of the building still. So it was a very interesting project. We couldn't, couldn't use cranes. Everything had to come up and down through the elevators. We did uh, have the opportunity one Sunday morning for about four hours of doing uh, four hours worth of helicopter lifts to the top of the building off of the corner of Michigan and Monroe to bring equipment to the top, but uh, uh, the vision was to create um, 167 condominiums at the top. Um, so this gives you an idea, a big, big picture overview. 
So who is your team? Michael, let me ask you, on, on 2-8 South LaSalle, what, he mentioned he got his ideas that were driving up Lakeshore Drive and saw the building. What, how did that vision come about to put in a hotel on that property? Well, we, uh, we bought 208 South LaSalle originally to renovate it as an office building. Um, ABN AMRO had moved out uh, years before when they built their new campus on the west, on the west side of the loop. And uh, we had 300,000 feet of vacancy at the bottom of the building. Uh, we bought the building in 2005, and we were studying the market and what to do with it and trying to figure out what large tenants might be interested in the, in the space in the bottom of the building. And, and one idea we had is based on the success of the W Hotel, across the street on Adams, because uh, they were far uh, exceeding their budget for Starwood every year, was maybe we'll uh, take a couple of floors and build out uh, some hotel rooms and lease it to uh, Starwood. <clears throat> so we, we did a little study and we found out that the floor plate was perfect for a hotel. We, are, we had a 16 foot 9 wide bay, uh, 25 deep on the columns, so it worked out to like a 430 square foot hotel room. And it laid out very well around the perimeter of the building. It's a full block building for those. So the light court, does it extend through the hotel floor? Light, light court goes down to the, what's now the top of the, the, the junior ballroom upstairs. Okay. But yeah, the, the hotel is in floors 1 through 12. And the light court goes down to, to the fifth floor. So who was your team, like the initial team you pulled together? Who was your designers? And, and what was that first call to Marriott like? Or did they pick well, up the we, phone we, to call you when they heard? We, first, Starwood, you know, when they studied the plans, they, they decided that They'd like us to build a hotel, uh, you know, and be part of the luxury collection because all the other flags that Starwood has in the city are all taken. Right. And they only have 300 keys left because of radius restrictions, and they're holding that out for St. Regis one of these days. Um, so, you know, they, they wanted to do a luxury collection, which is not the most popular brand. And we talked to Hyatt, we talked to Marriott and Hilton. <clears throat> and Marriott, quite frankly, gave us, uh, you know, the best financial proposal. Um, the best uh, financial performa, and also, uh, you know, we were the luxury flag for Marriott. Because the Ritz-Carlton here in Chicago is actually run by Four Seasons. So we were able to be the sort of the luxury brand of the Marriott family of flags. Um, if you're a Marriott rewards person, you want to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Give them a little Marriott pitch. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Rudy, let's, uh, let me ask you about your building. I'm going to skip ahead to a couple more slides here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history and how long your firm has owned that building and what it's been like to manage an historical property and really kind of keep it up to speed and maintain and how do you set your value points and how do you pitch yourself to the brokerage community and the corporate tenants? <laughs> I mean, I'll send you a loaded question there. Yeah, turn it on. Let's push that button. You hear me now? It sounds good. Well, that's a, it's a long story, but actually the building, it's a great question, and one, thing, one of the things I focus on uh, often because it's fairly unique, the building is actually owned by an individual gentleman. Uh, he bought the building in 1979 with a small partnership group uh, and has since spun that into a, a family-owned property. So our development process, uh, whilst continually ongoing, is, is fairly unique. As you know, most developers don't have 10 years to start and complete a project. Uh, we're fortunate from the standpoint that we like to call it patient money. We're able to take this thing and uh, through great continuity and, and leadership, uh, we have an owner that's got tremendous vision. Uh, in 2000, when I came on board, uh, we looked at the property. Quite frankly, I left JLL with the idea that I was going to kind of sit at a quiet building for a few years, regroup, and then get back into the third-party business. And then this project came up in a fairly simple way. I did a 3,000-square-foot lease, and I didn't have enough power to put the lighting in. So that was, uh, that was pretty unique, and that was new to, new to me. So we built a team, 
and um, sold ownership uh, with, the, with the idea that they either had two roads to go, they could sell the building or they could reinvest in it. And it's, it's a tremendous piece of real estate. It was a phenomenal opportunity. And uh, through his wisdom, uh, we went down that path. So since 1979, he's been starting and stopping and upgrading portions of the lobby. And um, Let me go to your slides. If you go through the slides, you'll see a couple of iterations. Bear with me, everyone. I'm going to just race here. There's the front of the building. Um, that's the old lobby that you see there. Uh, security desk in the middle, gypsum board ceilings, an old 1983 vintage light. But what you do see at the top of the building, you see some renovated cornices. So they picked and choose what they decided they were going to renovate. Uh, really, there was very little continuity. And so the overall project, we probably spent 40% of the time kind of erasing the sins of our forefathers, so to speak, and kind of rolling back and then gutting and starting again. If you move forward, you'll see the renovated lobby. First of all, um, through Getch Partners, who was our wonderful partner in this project, and Leopardo, we were able to renovate the lobby to an award-winning program. What you see here on the right is some cornices that were found tucked up in old ceilings. Uh, the building didn't have a lot of records. For whatever reason, they were destroyed, lost. Um, and on the left was a marketing piece from 1925 that was found. Uh, although the building was never built with that ceiling, it was value engineered out early in the process. Uh, it was originally designed and intended for it to be gold leaf. And that's what we did. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see that um, some of the workmanship. So there's about a seven layer process there. It's really an artesian job. These guys did a phenomenal process. And the interesting part about the job, outside of the, the actual final result, which we think is, is gorgeous, is that the building was about 80% occupied at the time, and we did the job by cantilevering over the entire lobby. So our foot traffic, and you know, God bless our tenants because they were very patient with us, for six months they came in and out of the building while we renovated the lobby above them. And that's, you can see in these guys, it's, it's kind of uh, very Sistine Chapel-ish. These guys almost <laughs> were working on their backs uh, through the process, but uh, we're very pleased with the result. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see kind of the final product. And there's, a, there's a couple versions of that if you want to just scroll through them different angles. Michael Klein, you, we talked a little bit about lunch. What's it like managing your tenants in, in a big construction project? It's, Michael, you know, you it, mentioned. It's, uh, the too. real keys we, we found was communication. We were officing in the building. We got to know all of our tenants. And at the time, we had about just under a million square feet of tenants in the building. And uh, we had a couple large tenants. Sergeant Lundy's our biggest tenant. Um, and, you know, sort of to our credit, our team's credit, I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, when we acquired the building, they were... Wow. <laughs> Feedback. Uh, they were about uh, 275,000 275, feet. Uh, during the process, during the construction process, while we were doing all the work, uh, we ended up renegotiating our, our lease with them. They extended their term 10 additional years, and uh, they're now a 500,000-foot tenant. So all, all of that was really communication through the process. It was letting them know when we were doing stuff. We brought, we, we literally uh, took the, the chillers down in the building. We brought Thermal Chicago in the building, so we brought all new cooling. Um, we had a lot going on. This gives you an idea of, of the breakup of the building, but this is down at the lobby. We had to separate out the lobby. But a lot of it was just talking to the tenants, letting them know what we were doing when. There were times where there were going to be days where it was noisy, and we just said to them up front, you know, do you have any meetings these days? If so, when? We'll try to work around it. Um, and that was a big, big part of it. Um, we spent a lot of time communicating, a lot of time keeping them in the loop, bringing them into meetings that we were having with our, with our architect. We had Getch Partners and Papa George Hames working together as a team. We brought them into meetings with them and the Lynn Mathis folks so that everybody knew from the beginning 
uh, sort of how this project was going to lay out. So separating the lobby, doing the garage, doing the top of the building, glass on the outside of the building. We'd get calls once in a while that somebody heard, you know, one of the cables, you know, pounding against a wall one day, and we'd have another meeting with them. You know, here's what we're going to be working tomorrow. So, you know, if you're in this side of the building or this cor corner of the building, uh, you know, there could be issues. But at the end of the day, it all worked out. The, you, the had big you, you basically restacked. You had big tenants. We had big tenants. We moved tenants down in the building. If, if you go back a couple slides to the, to the stack, um, we had tenants that were at the top of the building. We moved down. A number of the tenants, even though we lost Safar Shaw, we still had a couple other tenants we had to move down in the building. So we, we restacked those as well. Um, so it was really, again, you know, lots of pieces moving at the same time. At, 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 you know, each one of those floors, just to give you an idea, floor plate's big. It's like 45,000 feet. Each one of those condo floors... And again, I'm sure you know, uh, you know, uh, Mike Reschke will tell you the same thing with the hotel probably, although it was at the bottom. We did 500 cores per floor. You know, we had plumbing, we had electric, we had to take elevators out of service. We had to get on average anywhere from five to 600 uh, workers in and out of the building every day without destroying or disturbing our lobby while we were doing it. So a lot of noise, a lot of things going on. But again, staying in contact with our tenants, talking to them throughout the process, letting them know the days it was going to be noisier or dustier. I mean, dust was one of those things that you had to deal with, too. Um, that was a big key. Your plates are, your plates are over 40,000 as well, but you don't have big, giant, single tenants. You've got a lot of tenants in that building. So how did you manage that process? Well, there are a lot of small, smaller tenants. I think the average size tenant is about 4,000 feet. And we consolidated all the office tenants on floors 13 through 21. Uh, we were fortunate in that the building has... Uh, Four zones of uh, four elevator zones in each cor corner of the the building, and so the zone dedicated to the high rise, where the, uh, which was renovated, was other than when we were taking the elevators out and renovating them one by one, it didn't interrupt the uh, uh, office tenants' use. But we did have a lot of smoke and a lot of noise, a lot of dust, and uh, and they suffered for 30 months with us. And we had two fire alarms go off, and where the tenants had to evacuate the building, thanks to guys welding. Uh, uh, flames and, and the welders always do. But uh, we, we were able to stay. I think we were right in the high 80% occupancy through the whole uh, construction period. We were able to keep most of the tenants. Did you find anything cool? Did you unearth earth anything at all during this renovation? Oh, well, only what we knew was there. There's a big vault down on the lower level, which is now part of the uh, conference room for uh, in the executive offices for marketing. No, it was originally uh, a bank vault. The bank vault. The first yeah. bank. Yeah. Rudy, how about yourself? Anything cool? Any good El Capone stories for us about it? You know, historical property here in Chicago, they've, they've all got them. We actually thought we'd found something at one point, but it was just a big, dark, empty hole that led to nowhere. So, no, nothing that interesting. <laughs> the Al Capone's uh, vault, just the, big, uh, dark, empty holes. I will tell you the most, uh, I guess, challenging thing we did find is part, part of the renovation um, was kicked off by our ability to change the footprint of the building. The building was designed as a jeweler's building, and one of the interesting things, if you don't know the history of the building, is that there used to be car elevators. The jewelers would drive into the lower level of the building with their diamonds and precious stones on their person, into the car elevator, up to their floor, and then be let out on their floor, which they occupied. Uh, I guess the 1920s were fairly rough, rough times in Chicago. So in doing that, the core elevators kind of sat like this where my thumbs are, and we had these big, long cores, and we basically had this worthless space because those car elevators had been filled in in, about in the 1950s when they, when they became obsolete. Um, so we were able to shorten those cores, but in doing that, there were these big firewalls that were made out of masonry, and inside those firewalls, there is uh, br structural bracing. If you can picture the John Hancock building that's got the zigzagging steel that runs down the facade of the building, we have that on the inside of our building. 
So every time we get to a new floor, we find this zigzagging bracing, and it always hits in completely different spots. So the challenge going forward is while we've opened that core up and it allows us to have a pretty efficient footprint, uh, we do have this bracing. So thankfully, there's a lot of good architects, some of you are in this room, that kind of handle that pretty smartly, and uh, it really hasn't impacted us. But uh, I can't say that uh, Geraldo Rivera or anybody found anything fun in our building. <laughs> okay. Michael? Building's kind of from the 60s, I think. Yeah, this was, this was the history a of the building. Early 70s building. Uh, it was a Mid-Continental Plaza at the time when it was built. Um, gone through a couple changes of ownership. So for us, we were we were a little less concerned because we, you know, anytime you get into any sort of uh, renovation, especially of a building that's historic, you always wonder what you're going to find that's not on the plans or that you can't uncover. We were we were fortunate through the project. There was really nothing out there that was unusual or unique. There was a couple areas where we had some you know, fire issues that we had to deal with going in. We didn't sort of know about behind the walls, but nothing of real significance at all. Um, it was more just how do we, how do we take an, a building that was built in the 70s, redo the top of the building with, with terraces, and integrate it structurally as far as, so the outside of the building didn't look like, well, these guys thought about it after the fact, but how do we tie it all together? And again, I think our architects did a really good job coming up with some ideas. Who was the original plans. designer of the building? Do you know architect? Uh, I didn't mean to put you on the I spot. don't. I don't remember who it was. Um, just to add a little bit more, the reglazing, the restacking, you know, all that work that was done in the upper levels. Was that all done by, you know, hanging devices? It was all done devices? what we did. Thought, what did we you did use helicopters? Well, we, had the, we, we had the helicopter lifts, and that was for more, mostly mechanical. We had to move the fans because we still had fans that were going to end up supplying air to some of the upper office floors. They were, of course, on the east side of the building where the views are of the lake. So we moved those to the west side of the building, so we took out all the old... And we literally cut it all up, took it down through the freight elevators, but now we had to bring up the new fans that, of course, wouldn't fit in the freight elevators, so that's why we did our helicopter lifts. We did all of the, uh, the curtain wall. We went from a curtain wall system, which, which attaches to the outside of the building, to a window wall system, which literally sits on the floor. Um, all of that we did from both the inside, and then we used, in essence, what was the window washing rig and equipment from the outside to deal with it on the outside. So... It was literally opening up the building, trying to keep the building you know, as, as well pressurized as you could for your office tenants as we went through this process. We also had to, we had to add, and again, I'm sure others have too as they've gone through this, you know, your, your fire exiting and your stairs have to be closer. It's residential, so we had to move stairs out and we had to deal with that as well. Um, but there was all kinds of issues. At the top of the building, uh, we had a unique opportunity. That's where we put our amenities because you know, most of the time you're going to put your amenities, if you're building new today, a condo building, lower in the building. You want to save that space for your super penthouse buyers at the top. We had this space where the cooling towers were, the very top of the building. And I think it's on one of the slides. If you click on one of the next, it may have the amenities. There, uh, well, that's one of the penthouses. We did two-story penthouses at the top. Too so we had this space, which again, 24 feet of glass overlooking the lake. This is actually one of the penthouses. You can see on the left and the right, it gives you an idea of sort of height and what we're looking at. I wish I could say every floor looked like this. Every floor does have 11-foot glass, but this is a unique floor. And then if you go to the amenities, we did an outdoor hot tub. This is on, th these are real. This isn't you know, digitally drawn in. An outdoor hot tub at the top of the building. The outdoor terrace, which is connected to it, and it's enclosed, There's meaning enclosed. There's glass that, that wind protects you. Um, we did our fitness center on that same floor. We kept the glass on one side of it as well. And we did our community room up there. So again, I think somebody, one of my partners, I think Larry always says, we have the highest swimming pool in North America. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it's on the 50th floor, the lap pool, and it's actually indoors right next to all this. So we had some neat space, and when you come up there, it looks fantastic. And after people walk around, they start thinking, 
how'd you guys do this all up here? Like the swimming pool, pouring a pool. We had to bring all the concrete up through the building. So it was a, it was a very unique project, but, but a lot of fun to do. Cool. Rudy and Mike, you guys have historical properties from a, from a you know, state or local perspective. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about that process? And what, you know, did you pursue it? In some cases, people don't necessarily want to be designated, but I think in your case, you pursued that. Yes, we did. Starting uh, overall plan. We were able to get the building designated as a historic landmark. It was uh, the last building that Daniel Burnham designed before he passed away. Um, uh, we were very fortunate, however, because ad the adaptive reuse of the building into a hotel would not have been possible had it not been for 1961, the prior owner demolished the historic banking hall in the middle of the building and built a trading floor for Chicago Corp in the 60s. Because if, if that original banking hall was there, like the, twi there. the twin building is just now the Bank of America building, Kitty Corner on, La on LaSalle, you'd have to preserve it and keep it. We were able, because it was already destroyed, we were able to then c continue the demolition and build a state-of-the-art high-tech ballroom in the space. Did you uh, have other incentives in that? Did you have like yeah. societies meant or TIF or anything like that? Well, we, we entitled the 20% tax credits, which we sold. It was actually $50 million of tax credits that we sold to Chevron. And uh, we also qualified for Class L, which is a 12-year break uh, on your real estate account. taxes. Yeah, so we have a, a tax break for 12 years. How about yourself? And your building? Same thing. Our, I inherited the building. It was already on the uh, Chicago landmark rolls, and it's on the National Historical Landmark rolls. Um, and we did also, we applied for the Class L and were able to, um, to achieve that, which Michael mentioned, it's a 12-year program. So it, it freezes the assessment, or what is it? It's a 50% uh, reduction in assessment for the first 10 years. So they take that basis down to, I think it's 16% at this point, and then it goes back up. Of course, it's not a full 50% because they reassess you after your project. So it's, but it, uh, it made sense, and it certainly made a big difference. And uh, I think it's a smart program the city has in place. You share some of that savings with the tenants? Uh, actually, you know, um, part of part of being able to finance a job like this, I don't know if there's any brokers in the room. If there are, then you know that we don't have any money to finance anything. Um, but the reality is, in, in the economic climate and in, in the leasing market in the city of Chicago, it's very difficult to, to do deals like this and finance it. So Class L helped us get a portion of the way there. And no, what we actually did is we wrote, we wrote all of our leases as they rolled or as we did new leases, and uh, we carved it out, basically. But we made a decision early on that we were going to use capital dollars. So we used our money. We didn't charge or escalate anything back to the tenants. That was a tax uh, decision that we made. And um, because we didn't use their money, we took the Class L back. Now, we still continue to protest taxes in a normal course, and, and the tenants uh, are benefiting from that. We've got probably one of the lowest tax bases in the city. Uh, but it's worked out very well and made sense for us because uh, we're also a little different in that we're partially Canadian-owned. So the Canadian tax treatment's a little bit different than the U.S. tax treatment. So there was the ability to offset uh, some other corporate um, income that we created uh, through the loss carry forwards created by the project, through the Class L, uh, so all in all, we were able to do it uh, in a pretty efficient, efficient way, effective way. Okay. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, if all of you want to chime in on, the, and really your value proposition as you're talking to tenants and talking to tenant brokers. You know, how, does you, how do you pitch your, your office space in a few minutes? Uh, let me go first. I'll go first. I know, Michael, your building's a little different than these guys, but let's... let's yeah, you know, I use, a, I use kind of an analogy. I tell, I tell people that 35 East Wacker in the renovated floors, and keep in mind, our, our renovation is kind of twofold. We did the base building renovation that allowed us to get to the tenant floor renovation. Uh, somewhere in the slides, if, if you want to just scroll through them quickly, you'll see old corridor, new corridor, old bathroom, new bathroom, and we really tried to get to a Class A level so that we could close the gap on the better buildings in the city with respect to the rent we can charge 
um, and really give tenants a vehicle to, to operate their businesses efficiently. Um, the value add is this, I think. Uh, we were able to give people what I consider renovated Class A space at a, at a discounted B class rate. And you know, I think that, that meets two sensibilities. I tell people all the time, you know, the CEO should feel proud to walk into that renovated building. It's got cachet. It's in a landmark building. It's in a, it's in a great location. And uh, the CFO should say, listen, I did it for a discount. And uh, that's really worked well. I mean, the building is approaching 95%. It's a historical high in terms of occupancy. Our, uh, our rent roll has never been stronger in, ser in terms of the credit rating of our tenants. Um, the problem that our building always had was uh, economic instability. What happened to buildings and Class C buildings, well, I think, throughout the city feel this, is that in a bad market, two things happen, and they're both bad. Your weak tenants go under, and you lose them, and your bad tenants can afford better buildings, and you lose them. So from our perspective, we didn't want to do that anymore. We wanted to have people that we could service, manage their growth, and give them quality property. And um, many millions of dollars later, and a lot of patience and time later, I think uh, they're start we're starting to see the fruit of that labor. So it's worked out well for us. You lease in-house, right? Yes. Prime, well, prime lease your building, you have third well, party? Actually, we just switched, uh, we gave a leasing to uh, Paul Beitler's uh, operations, so he's handling outside leasing for us. But we market the space for, like any other mixed-use project with a five-star luxury hotel, the amenities and the location. Uh, you know, a great central location next to the Federal Reserve Board of Trade. But then you have the amenities of having a five-star hotel right below you and, and a 20,000-square-foot spa and the fine dining restaurants. and. Then also tenants, we're rolling out a program where if you're a tenant in the building, you get 20% off at the restaurant, special corporate rate on hotel rooms, and et cetera, Your buildings et cetera. are very family-style family, yeah. family style building. I see Bob Six over here is building the Burnham building that he owned as well. The, the tenants leave every day, and they hand the security guard the rent check and say, have a good weekend at your daughter's birthday party. It's really kind of family. It's a little different than the sterile Class A buildings. That's what I've noticed on the older properties. You've got big floor plates and big we tenants do. and we have do. had big tenants. Yeah, our, our floor plates, you, you know, just collect 40, rent and 47,000 feet, uh, a lot of big tenants in the building. Um, we're actually, so we'll be back in like a year, we're in the process of, now that we've done the whole residential piece, we're in the process. We just engaged an architect the other day, the SCB guys, and uh, uh, we're going to redo the uh, plazas outside, we're going to redo the canopies, and we're going to redo the lobby on the office building now. So we sort of feel like we owe it to our tenants who have been with us. Um, you know, through this whole process, and uh, we're probably going to end up doing a $10 million sort of lobby renovation to, to, again, try to bring the building up more to an A standard. Again, the building's always been solid building, solid performer, efficient floor plates, um, great views, obviously, if you saw the building on all sides, views of the city and everything else. Um, but, but what we really hadn't done, and no one had done over the years, was to really take the next step and, and upgrade the lobby. So that's one of the things that uh, we're about to do. Um, Chris, do, are we going to get those other pictures, or should we? Okay, just just run them over here when you can. Um, do you know uh, what, what would be your competitive set for 55 Eastman Road before we get off that topic? Is it sure. really? Is there really one? I mean, well, it's it's, it's really interesting. It's landscape. Re it is interesting because uh, having now you know lived as a tenant as well in the building for a number of years, um, you know people talk about about it as an East Loop building because again we we are just just east of State Street. But, and you can see, but, but we're really, most of the East Loop buildings, when people think traditional East Loop are, you know, Prudential Plaza, Aon, you know, out there. Um, so we do compete with some East Loop, you know, buildings. We, we compete a lot with Central Loop buildings. So, you know, buildings that are a block and a half, two blocks away, we're competing with on a, on a pretty regular basis. And, 
Generally, it's just efficiency of floor plate for somebody who's looking for a big floor. I mean, that, it lays out well. We've got right now, um, once we got the condos all completed, it left us our top three floors. We had to leave those vacant. We had plumbing and everything else we had to work through. So the good news is what's really left for us are our top three floors. So we've got, you know, 150, 160,000 feet contiguous at the very top of our building with all these views. And that's part of the, let's redo the lobby. Let's bring it up because when you get in the building and you look, you know, again, obviously the lake view and the park view is spectacular. When you look west, you get the city. And we want to take that next step. So it's competing with central loop buildings. It's sort of competing with east loop buildings at times. It, it sort of sits on its own a little bit. You know, you, you developed the property on Wacker Drive at 77. Your building's at 35 East. And you've got a lot of neighbors, one firm in particular, that's taking some of these older historical buildings and trying to recast them as ownership opportunities, in other words, condo conversion. Is that really a, a long-term? Yes, it's an opinion. Is it a long-term viable solution for exiting older properties? Well, you know, we've run those numbers a few times. And unless you've got special tax exemption, um, for me, I don't see how they pencil. But, you know, that, that becomes an individual choice. You know, becoming a landlord is, is not an easy proposition, as, as a lot of people know. Um, we've certainly lost a few deals to tenants, uh, the opportunities, but it was typically on the retrade. So as uh, second-generation condo space came up, a um, few tenants were able to buy it uh, kind of at a discounted, you know, today's market type rate. So there's been, another, there's been a resale market already? In the well, there's office. been a few, yeah. There's been a few deals that we had, uh, we had looked at that uh, decided to, that they wanted to be owners. And, um, you know, God bless you, you got to let them do what they want to do. I, I, you know, I see, I see the, the downside in it. I see the upside if you have some exam, ex, uh, tax exemptions. Uh, but beyond that, um, I haven't been able to make the numbers work. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's really not your for... cup of tea, but... I think it only works for nonprofits where they get the real estate tax break, uh, and and a nonprofit that doesn't have any growth uh, plans, sort of a stable uh, like family office or something, or, or, or trust. Uh, well, this, the, the Cornet has for some time now been uh, seriously studying, I guess, the impact of the FASB 13 changes. And I think if I said raise your hands, everybody would raise it if you thought about it. But uh, there's there was there's been some thinking in various uh, meetings throughout Cornet over the past few years that the change in FASB 13 might create more demand to buy these things. And I'm just curious, keep asking that question as we go along to see if anybody's actually seen that, that trend occur. I, I don't really hear it up not, here yet. Yeah, not much of it. No, I'm not seeing much either. Michael, you also uh, own 11 South LaSalle. Yes. Which is a, a great old building. Is, could you just give us an update on what's going on there? Well, we've uh, renovated the office lobby in LaSalle and the whole facade of the building, and, and same program, historic tax credits, Class L exemption. Uh, we've kept floors 3 through uh, 15 vacant, and we're looking at different uh, uses, uh, everything from uh, school to uh, another hotel possibly, or, uh, or a big office tenant, because it has, that space has a separate elevator for the separate entrance on uh, Madison. What, how about, uh, you probably don't have as much of a problem, but you know, for the last 10 years or so here in Chicago, you couldn't get around without walking under a scaffold. How, how were the facade issues, if any, dealt with over the years? And then do you guys have anything, you know, at the top of the list to get completed when you renovate it, or is that just an ongoing maintenance? Well, I, I can tell you, when we went for the Class L, one of the line items was our, uh, was our terracotta. I mean, we knew that it was an ongoing maintenance item. Um, it helped us fill the gap in terms of meeting our economic requirements uh, for Class L. I will tell you, and I would advise anybody, you have to be insane to buy a building that's got terracotta on it in the city of Chicago. It is a multi-million dollar everyday issue. If you're going to be a good landlord, you've got to be on the building every year. 
The city's got very uh, stringent code requirements in terms of inspection, and rightfully so. I mean, you don't want one of these things coming down on you. So uh, we spent a lot of time, effort, and money uh, on the terracotta of the building. It's beautiful. It's worth maintaining, but it's, it's definitely an economic impact. And if you look at it, there's really no payback in maintaining the terracotta other than, you know, the public, the right. public good. Right. Um, so we all pass by and admire the well, beautiful right. historical it's property. Be, it's beautiful. You need to make it safe. But uh, you can't say, I've got a beautiful facade. I'm going to charge you $3 a foot more in rent. And, and rumor, has it, rumor has it the tenant brokers are making sure those leases uh, don't allow for that, that problem and that, uh, you know, that broken terracotta <laughs> to be passed through on all occasions. Yeah, you know, thank God for gap accounting. There's a lot of gray area in terms of what is an operating expense. But uh, for the most part, you're right. I mean, the language has gotten more and more sophisticated, and the better brokers certainly pick up on it. Never take a fire escape off a building, terracotta building, because I mean, we went through and renovated the whole facade. Oh, and on the north side, in the middle of the building. Well, we had three fire escapes at uh, the 208 building, and when we, last thing we did after we did all the all the smoke evacuation work inside the building to meet Marriott standards, was take the fire escapes off, and all the terracotta behind it was all broke loose. The, the, the fire escape was holding uh -huh. it. The, the facade yeah. on the wall. Well, speak of the devil. We, that's scary. Yeah. We had some. Leave the uh, fire escapes up. Yeah, they're staying. We had some earlier technical issues, but we we got some interesting photographs of your uh, renovation and, and uh, recycling of 208. If you want to uh, go through some of these, maybe give us a few bullet points on each slide. It'd be. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, the Adams facade. That's the you know the main entrance of uh, the hotel on Adams Street. Um, these are new circular staircases that we added. We actually took the. Uh, the uh, lobby on Adams, and we, we removed the floor to create a two-story volume uh, to have a grand. So th this uh, is new, new design and construction? It's all, all, it's all brand new. Does it mirror something that had existed in the no. building before? No. It was, in, in fact, we took a floor out to be able to create it almost looks space. like uh, most people when they walk in think. It reminds me of the Rookery lobby. <laughs> Probably nothing like it at all. This, oh, this is, looked fun. Yeah. This is, uh, this is the extent of the demolition, but we took it down to the steel frame. Uh, and what you're looking at, this is actually the second floor of the building. This was the original banking hall of the building uh, and with a big barrel vault at the, at the top of the space. And we actually brought in be uh, steel beams and trusses and we divided the space into two. So the, the ground floor or the, the main ballroom on level two has a 35-foot ceiling flat and then the junior ballroom above has the barrel vault ceiling uh, above it. So right above, up the top of the slide here is the... Uh the vaulted ceiling. You yeah, you can barely, barely see it. Yeah. Oh, there it is. And that's that's the ballroom upstairs today. And that's a new. That's literally a brand new floor that we put in the space. Kind of gives you a before yeah, and after. Sort of before and after. We. Yeah. Oh, we just called it the uh, Burnham Ballroom. It's about five thousand square feet. The ballroom below it is about uh, nine thousand square feet. Great legacy. Yeah. The, um, I was involved in a transaction for the Lurie family. We sold 120 South LaSalle, which had a grand banking hall. I think there's maybe two or three. Well, there's private, private banks there now. Right, yeah, private and, banks. And, and, so, you know, and then Bank like, of America has a grand banking hall. Correct. So a lot of these old uh, historical buildings on the sale were all really, really all bank buildings. They all had those grand halls, but over the years they've been renovated out. How do you see the, uh, I know you're involved as well on a, on a property on Delaware, a condominium building, and, and Mike, maybe you guys could chime in a little bit about how's residential condos going in, <coughs> in new buildings and in, in yeah. recycled buildings. We were, actually, we were just talking about it when uh, we got here. It's, it, you know, not a surprise. We've sort of followed the economy the last 24 months. We went for an 18-month period where we, we sort of said we didn't see anybody. Uh, I don't think anyone saw anybody. 
beginning of last year when the, when the uh, tax credit was out there, sort of for the first time home buyers, all of a sudden activity picked up. Uh, we've got 167 units. Activity picked up on our one bedrooms. We'd sold most of those out, but we had a handful left. We saw activity on the one bedroom, still very little on the two. Tax credit ended, it got quiet kind of over the summer, and uh, as, as the two of us talked earlier, December and January were two of the best December and Januarys that I think anyone can remember. If you talk to appraisal research who follows all these numbers, nobody knows why. Normally they say, you know, by Thanksgiving time, every, and it typically does, everything slows down, nothing happens, and then post-Super Bowl, everything picks up again, spring shopping and everything else. Um, we saw a ton of activity, activity all starting in November, uh, until now, um, we've closed a number of units. One of our biggest penthouses, uh, which was about 4,200 feet, we, we sold it white box. We just sold it about three weeks ago, closed on it. The buyer who bought it is going to put another million dollars of finishes into it. Um, we've, we've closed in the last five weeks, I think it's either five or six units. So we went from you know, nothing for a year, year and a half, to activity starting about a year ago with the one bedrooms and the tax credits, to a little bit of lull, and now all of a sudden, we're seeing the buyers that, that is, as we talked, are real buyers, not the buyer that comes in and sees an $800,000 big two-bedroom unit and says, I'll give you five hundred dollars for it. That was like six months ago. Half are in this room. You're right. I've seen a few of you guys. Yeah, and, uh, but, but all of a sudden now, the $800,000 unit, somebody will come in and make an offer for seven or seven and a quarter, and now you sit down, you fill the gap, and you get it done. So the activity's picked up, I mean, relative to clearly what we saw a year ago, but even six months ago. You have a nice little trend line you talked about earlier. Yeah, we, we, uh, we have 121 units, uh, average price of $1.3 million, uh, 10 East Delaware. And uh, we had 90 sold, started construction, uh, 50 of those 90 closed, 40 walked. And, but Actually during, good yeah, numbers on a look back. Yeah. <laughs> and during construction, uh, 08, 09, I think we were averaging maybe seven, eight sales a year. Like, you know, a good month, we'd have one. Uh, uh, and, uh, but in the last uh, two months, we, uh, well, in January, we, we sold five units. And our traffic's doubled. Uh, and that's during the football season. I mean, the Super Bowl and the playoffs and everything. So we were shocked. Because uh, usually... You took all his buyers. Uh, we didn't have anybody to the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was, it was uh, surprising. We both said the same thing. And it was across the market. I mean, we felt... You guys really, don't compete, we right? Felt, you, you, we you felt, felt, no, we really don't. We felt really good about ourselves as our numbers were coming in. Then we saw the whole you know, citywide traffic. We said, okay, we, we all did relatively well. But it was just interesting that, that it, was the, it was more the upper-end buyer. We've seen very little... Of the one-bedroom buyers, it's for us. It's been in the you know seven hundred thousand to to two million dollar range, which we didn't expect. We thought as the cycle ticked up, you know, we'd start again with the one-bedroom buyers and move up. So, whatever that's worth trend-wise, it's it's nice to see. Just give me a quick snapshot, if you wouldn't mind, on your financial partners and if you could the budgets and tell us the magnitude of some of these developments. The uh, 55 East Monroe from start to finish acquisition to where we're at today, it's about a, a little over $600 million project. Um, and uh, one of my partners funded the whole, no, I'm just kidding. Um, this was our, our partner on the project uh, on, the, on the capital stack side, on the equity side, side was Walton Street Capital. Um, they've been a wonderful partner to work with. Um, we've had a great relationship with those guys. Um, and then we, we actually have two different lenders on the project and multiple lenders within those. We had a, uh, what was LaSalle and now Bank of America, uh, syndication on our condo project at the top. And uh, we currently have RBS at the bottom uh, for the office building. So we had to do a whole vertical subdivision and another lot, lot of fun. But, uh, but it's, it's been really good. I mean, we've been very happy. Our office building's 82% occupied. And so from a cash flow perspective, we've been really good. We just extended 
uh, our condo loan three years uh, with B of A, so they've been happy with how we've been doing and what we've been doing. So um, it's, it's worked out real well. Our, our relationships on the capital side have been really good. Good. And Rudy, you mentioned you, you're really a, your primary owner is a private individual. There's some ownership interest from Canada. Yep. It didn't sound like you had a lot of debt on the property. Actually, very little uh, until recently where we just decided to reposition some of our, some of our, our, our money, our cash in the deal. Uh, our building the renovation is about $35 million and counting as we're probably only halfway through with uh, the floor renovations as we go. Uh, it was financed all through internal cash flow, so we borrowed no money. We, went, we did not go to the banks at all, which is certainly nice. It allows you to not have to report upstream all that much. Um, so, I mean, the story is short, but it continues. I mean, yeah. the building is, um, is still a work in progress. Michael, you uh, have a big our, budget. Yeah, our project, well, it started at 396 and it, it got bigger. <laughs> and I think we ended up right under $430 million, both uh, the office and the, uh, and the hotel. Um, and it's a horizontal sub or vertical subdivision. We financed the office building separate from the hotel. Um, we had a $50 million uh, loan. Uh, so why did you vertically subdivide? Is it? Um, because uh, the lender that wanted to finance a hotel didn't want anything to do with the office and vice versa. So, and also in terms of exit strategy, probably a different buyer for the office building than the, uh, than the hotel. And you had equity and construction lender throughout? or was that Yeah, well, we, Ulico was our construction permanent loan. Many perm lenders, a seven-year construction, five-year permanent loan on the hotel. Uh, and, and for $210 million, and then there's $100-some million of equity. Uh, myself and my German partner, and uh, selling the tax credits to Chevron. Okay. And uh, is Marriott? Is it you own the hotel? They manage it for yeah, you. Yeah, they're just they have a, a, a management agreement. They have a management agreement, and uh, they they also have an income support agreement. I mean, they they guaranteed us our first four years of uh, income, thank God. But there is a a, a cap on it. Uh, but the, they took on some financial responsibility. If that building plopped down in front of you, would you do it again? Looking uh, back. Yeah, I'd do it again, but with bigger contingency reserves. Um, uh, we, At least we got, 35, 40 got, million. Yeah, well, we got killed with uh, structural issues because it's a clay tile arch building. And the amount of vertical penetrations we had to put in the building for yeah, the stairs, of a lot of things, duct work, removing floors for atriums and, and escalators and everything. Uh, we ended up having to rebuild most of the clay tile arch bays whenever we had a penetration with light steel framing. So we almost had to rebuild the structure uh, unbeknownst to us when we started. Unpleasant surprises. Dan, how are you doing for time? Oh, Chris, ready? Gentlemen, uh, thanks a lot. Why don't we take a few questions in, uh, sure. in the audience and see where that takes us. Michael, how about you? Would you do, would you do the same thing again if you had a chance when you're driving yeah, up Lakeshore Drive? And yeah, it was, uh, it's been a, a great project as far as just uh, putting the pieces together. Because you know, every day, as, as these guys know, it's a new experience. And whether you're dealing with municipal issues or lender issues or construction issues, we're working with the architects. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Bob, I'll get to you in a second. A young lady back here, I think, had a question. Of the, of the two buildings that uh, have condos and office space, um, is there, in our office as an end user, we've had some issues when we've been in buildings with condos because we have to deal with the condo association as well as the landlord. And uh, it's created problems for us when we've wanted to run fiber or anything else that typically would, you would do in an office building environment. Um, have you run into that yet, or have you made accommodations with, for that in, in your office leases? How long have you been a tenant in that building, just for perspective? Um, this was uh, 
relatively new building. Well, and so there was new condo owners. So you weren't, didn't have the benefit well of learning from other. So, yeah, same environment. Offices on some floors and then But it wasn't, then a, condos it wasn't a, a recycled building. It was built as a mixed-use development? Um, that I'm not sure because it was not in the Chicago area. Yeah, how, did, how did your condo association get along with the, the rest of the Well, I, I mean, from our, from our perspective, um, we, we, it's early, meaning it's been about two, two, two and a half years. We haven't had any issues, meaning, you know, we, we uh, completely vertically subdivided it. All the mechanicals, everything is separate. So there's no sharing. Separate entrance, separate everything. Um, the only area where we could get, and we left riser space available because we've got machine rooms for the mechanical, uh, for the uh, elevators at the top of the building still for some of the office floors. So we've got riser space available. So there's never a time where we've got to, and, and the office building, by the way, controls it all. The way we set it up, the office building controls the, the very limited crossover. So for example, when you do the roof at the building someday, you've got to redo the roof. The office building controls, you know, make sure it's maintained, make sure it's redone. Um, there's a little bit of, of uh, uh, with respect to the window washing, you know, the condo owners want it more often than the office owners do during the year. So the times they do it, it's at the top of the building, they do it and, and really doesn't impact us. So we were very, very careful about separating the uses out so that there wasn't any crossover between the two. So that the, what we didn't want to do was hamstring the office building owner with a condo board. So literally everything is driven by, when I say driven by, if there's, if there's any management, and, and the two that I can think of now are really the roof and the window washing, those are controlled by the office building. So you don't have to go to the condo and say, here's what we're doing. They present them with a budget every year. I think there's maybe $100,000 at most in expenses that cross between the two. And again, those are sort of roof maintenance and some window washing stuff. So we were really, really careful. Uh, our partners had a couple projects our capital partner, where they had some issues in a mixed-use development where the condo initially was given more control. So we were pretty, pretty careful about that. Bob Six? This is a, uh, a fun question from Michael Klein. Um, given last week, I can't help but ask, having seen the, uh, uh, the hot tub up there, what was snow removal like on the uh, roof of the condo? It was, uh, well, if you were on Wabash at the time and you were wearing your hard hat, you were probably okay. No, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a little challenging. Um, we, we've got, we have the drainage, we had to move everything to the side. Not a lot of people out there, I know you're surprised, using right now the hot tub. We do keep it open though, 12 months out of the year, and we've had at least two snows where I've been up, whether it was meeting with our marketing people or whatever, and there's people sitting in the hot tub and it was probably, you know, 20 degrees outside. So, uh, but it, that, that has been, uh, that is, it's been interesting. We, we, so far, we moved everything out. We do have, the nice part is we sort of have a garden area in the middle. So a lot of stuff ends up, for now at least, in the garden area. And you guys have hot tubs? You put hot tubs in the building? Well, I guess the hotel would have them. <coughs> we have a swimming pool and then a health club. And uh, the, the large suites have large swimming pools, or whirlpools. What do you have in those domes on your, in your corner cupolas? Hey, those are actually private. Uh, that's one of our tenants. It's an investment trading firm that sits up there. And uh, one is a CEO's office. One is a, uh, a trading room. They're, they're, they're interesting. Very nice. Brian, you had a question? Yeah, question for Michael. How much were you pre-sold on the condo, and then what drove, because it's entirely office, what drove the decision as to where to start residential and where to draw that line, and was that changing over time? Very complicated question, actually. It started out, if you can go back to the slide that shows the stacking plan, this will make it easy. Can you? Or can't? Okay. That's right. Don't it's worry about it. Five or six. We, we, originally, we originally had planned uh, two phases in the condos. They were each about nine, it was about nine floors each total. And it was really driven by, we started at the top, why? Because 
Safe Arshad moved out. We had those floors available. And then we had a number of tenants who were in the other floors that either their leases expired, they were going to expire by like 08, or uh, we'd already talked to them, we were going to relocate them down as part of the project. You know, and it, by the way, it's as most of you know, it's really good to be lucky as well. Our planning, you know, we feel really good about it, but at the end of the day, it was good to be lucky. We had done the first, we were in the middle of the first phase. We had pre-sold 65% maybe at the time and started our loan, started, started building the condos out. And our largest tenant in the building I talked about earlier, Sergeant Lundy, um, they were growing and they needed 60,000 feet and came to us and their lease expired in like 12. And they said, you know, we need some additional space. And, and the folks at, uh, actually the folks at Studley were representing them. And we finally said, whoa, guys, you're eating up a big chunk of our building. You have a lot of leases rolling. We need to do something. And they came back to us and said, to make a long story short, we're worried. You've done these condos on top. You've got all these floors. We're not going to have a place to grow. So we came back to them and said, the condo market had already turned. It was obviously the first turn down. And uh, we, we, uh, we came back. We said, you know, we have an idea. Uh, if we're willing to take back some floors in phase two, all but two actually, five floors, we need you guys, given your, they were committed to their growth. They knew they needed X floors. They ended up needing about 90,000 feet. If you'll commit to a put to take those two floors, in these years you said you need them, which was just a couple years out, we'll take the floors back. So what really drove our decision and what shrunk our condo project, originally it was 350 units. Now when it's all said and done, phase two now is only going to be 55 units if we end up doing phase two, was really the growth of our office building. So uh, we, we left ourselves, the good news was we left ourselves the flexibility. We had no idea it was going to happen the way it did because I remember when we started this project, condo market was booming and everybody said, you're only doing 360, why, why don't you take <laughs> half the building? In hindsight, it was good that we did it in two phases. You know, that's why I said it's good to be lucky. Had all those tenants been out, we probably would have started saying, yep, we're going to do all 363, but because those tenants were still in there, sort of helped us at the end of the day. Interesting, Interesting question, question for <coughs> Mr. Rusky. Uh, Crane's article about the old Shangri-La Hotel. You want to comment on that project or that article? Well, I, you know, I can't comment right now, but uh, we are working on it. We're looking at... Uh, uh, possibly uh, adding, uh, you know, four or five hundred thousand feet of office space on top of the shell and putting a luxury hotel in the base where the Shangri-La was going to go. <clears throat> but we don't. We're under a confidentiality agreement right now. Understood. There's any no uh, no further questions. Okay, I, I I just think it's been a real fun uh, afternoon. I want to thank all three of you for coming. And uh, Michael, good luck. I know your uh, uh, your project's be has been uh, nominated for. Commercial Real Estate Award in March at the uh, Food Depository Commercial Dinner. Thank you. And keep on trucking, keep on yeah. leasing, keep on selling everybody. And thank you all for your rapt attention. It's uh, been a great uh, lunch. Thank you. Thank you.